It works everywhere else in Alberta, but could it work here? Police say no. This week, the police funding formula was up for debate. And debate it, councillors did. We'll give you the Cliffs notes before they do it all again next week. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 179. We're recording this Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. About an hour ago, there was some pretty... Uh, spicy news in the provincial politics sphere, but we're just going to pretend that we recorded this at 6.30 p.m. before we knew the answer. Sound good, Mac? Sounds good to me. And let's start off our podcast full of ignorance with the rapid fire segment. Rachel Notley was declared the clear victor as the results of the UCP leadership review were revealed Wednesday night. In her victory speech, the leader of the opposition expressed surprise at her victory, but couldn't find anything about jobs, economy, pipelines that differed from the NDP plans. The Edmonton Elks, after a disappointing performance this season, lost $1.1 million. However, the team is optimistic and have already developed a made-in-Edmonton solution based on prior work by the Edmonton police. The Elks board will be bringing forward a request that the team be funded instead by a funding formula, a tool they've seen used to give undeserving organizations year-over-year increases. Said board chair Ian Murray, quote, This new funding model is a natural fit because there are so many similarities between the Elks and the police. Only the EPS is ahead of our organization in doling out concussions by members in the field. The high-level streetcar had the grand opening of its extension Thursday morning to much acclaim from the local community. The 800-meter extension will bring the streetcar all the way to White Avenue, which the Radial Railway Society says will massively increase visibility. Councillor Tim Cartmel declined to RSVP to the event, however, replying simply, quote, it should have been BRT. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this episode is brought to you by the Well-Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink, and it's produced by Lisa Pruden. It explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation, of course, helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. They're already up to episode 122, and it features Jessica Vandenberg, a survivor of the 60s scoop. You can subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Well, Mac, this episode, despite not being called cops will probably be a lot about the cops again. Council seemed to talk all about them this week, though in three sort of different streams. Yeah, this week we had reports on the city's community safety and well-being strategy following, you know, the announcement recently from the city that this strategy, which has the confusingly same name as the group that came up with the Safer for All report, is intended to make Edmonton the safest city by 2030 or whatever it is. It's not important. It's not a real strategy. We'll get to that. <laughs> uh, in conjunction with that, we heard a lot of news about downtown and policing downtown. And then, of course, today when we were recovering this, it was police funding formula day. And so we got the first report at council on what to do about the police funding formula, which, of course, was frozen a couple of years ago. So I think the best place to start is uh, at the not a strategy, the community safety and well-being strategy. This is what we talked about at the end of last week's episode. Uh, we were a bit confused by what seemed sort of like non-information, and we weren't quite sure what the strategy was about. And it doesn't seem like this past week was exceptionally illuminating. <laughs> well, we did get a little bit more detail about what this strategy is all about. So, you know, the news release last week talked about 
this framework and these seven pillars and this, the city sort of medium and long-term outcomes. And, you know, as I said, this, this goal to make Edmonton uh, a safe and inclusive and more equitable city. And this week when council discussed the report, we got to learn about some of the actions because of course strategy is one thing, but putting some money behind it, funding some things is what is going to bring it to life. And so there were 10 potential things that were brought forward, recommended actions that would help uh, with this strategy implementation for 2022 and 2023. Many of them did not seem to be contentious, things like microgrants, funding for this integrated call and dispatch center, the idea of an Indigenous-led shelter. These kinds of things are, are on this list of 10 that we'll put in the show notes. But there were a couple of things that seemed to catch the eye of some councillors. Uh, in particular, Councillor Karen Tang, who noted that one of the options was a drug poisoning response. Want to guess how much money they decided they were going to apply to drug poisoning response? Probably one of the biggest current crises facing our city, Troy. Well, optimistically, I would say, you know, $700 million. <laughs> $700 million would be amazing. Out of the $8.4 million, which is the amount that is left from the police budget increase that was held back in December. This is the amount they have not allocated. This are trying to decide how to allocate the remainder of that funding. Of that $8.4 million, $25,000 was allocated toward drug poisoning response. And so Councillor Kantang said quite rightly, she's quite concerned that it's such a small amount of money. We've talked a lot in previous episodes how much of our crime and disorder can be traced in some way to the drug poisoning crisis and some of the issues that go along with it. Wouldn't addressing that on a fundamental level be part of this like addressing root causes that this entire strategy was supposed to get at the root of? Am I missing something there or does this seem to fly and miss the point radically? I don't think you're missing anything. Councillor Tang suggested that uh, we increase this money, of course, and the way that she suggested doing that was to uh, scrap one of the other proposed programs here. So there was another uh, item, which is also one-time funding, but significantly more for $200,000 to fund and uh, probably expand the Edmonton Public Library's Sing, Sign, Laugh, and Learn program. Now, don't get me wrong. I have been to this program many times with my daughter. It is an amazing program. It absolutely should be funded and expanded across the city. It's a wonderful resource for, for kids and parents in our city. But put alongside $25,000 for opioid response, I have a similar issue to this as, uh, as Councillor Karen Tang does. $200,000 for this program. Is this actually dedicated funding for harm reduction? Or is this taking the $8 million that we have running spare and saying, hey, we got some extra general revenue. Could we bump up some services? I don't see how this gets us to the addressing root causes of systemic racism or houselessness or opioid poisoning. I don't, I don't see the connection here. Neither did many of the councillors. And when asked about it, city manager Andre Kobold responded that they were trying to be a little innovative and said, quote, we had heard from a lot of the community and from council that you didn't want to see the same old things. Yeah, it's also not a new program. They're just increasing funding. That is true. <laughs> Innovation now is simply funding things we already do. So what did council decide to do? 
Well, this was committee, of course, and so unsurprisingly, they requisitioned this to council, which means they basically did not make a decision, did not make a recommendation, and have kicked the can down the road to next week for the full city council meeting to debate these issues and to decide which, if any, of the 10 they'd like to fund or maybe some other way they would like to divvy up the remaining $8.4 million. Was there anything else related to this or is it just getting kicked up to council for next week? Mainly getting kicked up, but there was one other motion that I thought was sort of interesting. This was from Councillor Carmel. And the motion essentially asked administration to provide a report detailing federal, provincial, and municipal responsibilities in relation to this work. And it specifically calls out, you know, housing, mental health, addictions, corrections, reconciliation, policing, whole laundry list of things. And it says this report should also detail the comprehensive strategies that have been developed by the city to address these areas of responsibility. So it seems like a nothing report, right? I mean, we have these kinds of information reports all the time. There's not likely to be any action that comes as a result of this. But I am optimistic, Troy, that we are going to get a report that has all of the committees the city has started about this and we're going to see, you know, the five or six of them next to each other that you and I have talked about on this show before. And I think it could look pretty funny, actually, at how many different things that they seem to have done. And and it kind of feels almost in a way representative of this strategy, which just seems to be too broad and too all-encompassing to actually get any single thing moved forward. I remember when I was doing first year calculus in university, there was a standard joke. I was not good at first year calculus. Um, <laughs> I ended up with a D plus in that course. So, you know, get D's in calculus. You can become a podcaster, kids. One of the jokes when I was doing calculus homework was you look at Troy, he assesses the problem. He rewrites the problem for clarity, assesses the problem, rewrites the problem for clarity. And that seems like what the city is doing here. You never actually solve this problem, but you're like, you know, if we just restructure and create a new committee and reassess this problem, maybe we can get to a solution. And we never quite get to that end goal. D plus city of Edmonton. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of D plus, uh, let's talk about downtown policing. Yes, this came up kind of every day this week, actually. There were speakers, of course, at committee, and they spoke a bit about this. And then we heard from police some data about this. So I first think it's important to point out that when we say downtown in the context of this conversation, we're using it as the police do, which is not just downtown, but refers to all of the communities around the downtown as well. We heard today, actually, during the funding formula debate that the police are planning to redraw that boundary yet again a little bit. So it's different than what you and I probably and most people think of when they think of downtown. But in any case, the broad numbers are 19% of the calls for service come from the downtown district. And of the 1,891 sworn full-time equivalents, these are officers that the Edmonton Police Service has this year, just 21 have been assigned to the downtown beat. Now, you didn't do very well in calculus, Troy, but I'm willing to bet that you can (laughs) say 21 out of 1,800 is not 19%. And I know it's not that simple, but it does give you a sense of the delta, right? I've seen The Wire. I know that, you know, there's some casework that needs to be done behind the scenes. Isn't this just how the police assign officers? You know, maybe they have a huge back office and we've always had a small downtown beat with 21 officers. Well, Dale McPhee says we used to have more. He said as recently as 2018, there were about 40 
officers on the downtown beat. And of course, today we heard from other members of the service who said that, you know, it's not that simple. These are 21 officers that are, you know, assigned to the downtown patrol, but we have all of these other teams of people, special teams of officers that also service the downtown. They made the case that 21 is not really representative of the number of officers that you see in the downtown on on any given day. And I think that's probably true. I mean, I walk my daughter to daycare and probably see almost that many cops getting coffee in the morning. So (laughs) there are obviously more officers working in the area. But even still, to say that there are 21 out of, you know, this many and that there were more before did not sit well with a number of the people who spoke at committee this week who were talking about the importance of some sort of short-term action. If this community safety and well-being strategy is a bigger, to some extent, medium to long-term strategy to make Edmonton a super safe place, what are we going to do about the immediate problems that are facing downtown, is what many of these speakers brought up. And what they were calling for was an increase in police presence, an increase in visibility. The Downtown Business Association in particular talked about wanting to have more officers downtown to be more visible. And, you know, McPhee gave these numbers and said that if we wanted to do that, we would have to pull from another area or, of course, unspoken, ask for more money. If McPhee is saying that they'd have to pull officers from another area, then the inverse is also true. We know that there were 40 officers in 2018 in the downtown beat, and now there's 21. So those officers were pulled away from downtown. And if the EPS, as we've seen them in the past couple of weeks, have been saying, you know, downtown disorder, transit disorder is getting to an untenable state. It's not safe to go outside your house. Uh, maybe not that dramatic, but, you know, mm-hmm. close to it. Can't you make the argument that the EPS have intentionally created this situation? If they know about the problems enough to tweet about it and they're actively reassigning officers away from that beat, what am I missing here? Does this not reek of intentionality? It absolutely does. And many others made the same argument this week. Unfortunately, we did not hear a reason why this many officers have been pulled away from the downtown or why additional officers in the last couple of years, as we've seen disorder increase in that area, have not been assigned to the downtown. McPhee would only say that they have a plan in the works to try to address the resourcing issue with downtown. So we don't actually know what that looks like yet. It was a little bit of a trust us, we've got this under control and no real accountability for why this numbers changed so dramatically, even though police always like to remind council and the rest of us that they have lots of data. They have the data on where they're getting calls for service. It would seem logical to me that you would assign some more officers to the area of the city that you are being called to service the most. So I saw that the mayor had called for basically increased immediate funding to get more boots on the ground downtown to help address some of these issues. Yes, the mayor made a motion in response to uh, this discussion about disorder downtown. And it's a two-parter. And I'll mention them separately because I think the second part is kind of interesting in particular. But the first part essentially asked for administration to work with the Downtown Business Association and the police to request the use of up to a million dollars from provincially provided downtown safety resources to support social workers, mental health specialists in the help teams that have already been active in the downtown and in the Chinatown, and also to supplement the daytime shelter space that is led by Indigenous community organizations. So that sounds sensible to me. You know, no questions asked there. The second part of the motion 
is that administration work with the Downtown Recovery Coalition to allocate up to $4 million from the 2022-2024 budget, the provincial budget, that the city got this money for downtown vibrancy. And they want to use that funding for similar purposes to enhance the help and caught teams, um, to provide more resources to both Chinatown, the transit system downtown, supplement shelter space, that kind of thing. So all in, he wants to take, you know, $5 million and use that to more address this more immediate need of boots on the ground. And I think we should come back to that because I don't think that's going to make a difference. Back to the point about root causes. But is the Downtown Recovery Coalition thing that I thought was particularly interesting. Now, you looked at the uh, the list of members who are on this group, which we learned about for the first time. Yeah, I want to say, when we're talking about this Downtown Recovery Coalition being in emotion and directing the city to work with them, I've never heard of this organization before this motion. This is the first time I've heard about this. Is this a new team that sprung up immediately and is now in motions and having the city directed to work with them? It does seem to be that case. Yeah, that's the case. Uh, This DRC, we'll call it for short, has been says it's been advocating and working with the mayor's office, council and the police service to try and uh, help downtown recover beyond COVID-19 to go back, you know, beyond where we were before the pandemic negatively impacted the downtown. There's about 15 people or so on this. It's chaired by Alex Haritsu, who works at the uh, Edmonton Chamber of Commerce. But you've got some of the usual suspects on here. Chris Beise, who's the president of the Downtown Community League, and Punita McBrien, the executive director of the Downtown Business Association. You've even got some folks from Chinatown, Pilar Martinez, who's the CEO of EPL. You know, there's a, a laundry list of names on this membership roster. And it just struck me as a little bit odd that, as you point out, this group did not exist. We had not heard anything about it. And now all of a sudden, they're in a motion. And I tweeted something to this effect that if you get an official sounding group together, Downtown Recovery Coalition sounds official. Prosperity Edmonton. Right. You put a bunch of names on there that people seem to recognize. Councillors in particular will recognize that you can get some things done. You can get them to take some action. So I'm not criticizing this group. I think I know many of these folks, and I know they are very well-intentioned. Uh, it seems like they're playing the game really well. It's really more of an indictment of council that either the mayor's being very strategic here, helped get this thing off the ground so that he could kind of show that he had community support for wanting to put this $5 bucks together, or this group has come forward because council is in- incapable of making these kinds of decisions and taking this kind of action on their own, and they needed the push. But either way, kudos to them for playing the game, right? Unfortunately, I think it is the latter one because on the matter of policing, I don't know that strategic or deliberate are adjectives that I would ascribe to Mayor Sohi. I think back to the funding discussion where he put a motion on the floor to give the police "Eh, six million and then withdrew it and then hemmed and hawed about supporting zero or supporting one or supporting another race. It didn't seem like he had some 4D chess game plan that he was executing on. No, I think that's true. We should also mention that both you and I have been part of <laughs> these kinds of things before. You were in Yeg Core Zone. I was in this thing called the One Edmonton Leadership Forum that advocated for the uh, the downtown arena, which I wrote about how I disagreed with and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, the point is, this seems to be a well-established practice, right? You get this group of community folks together and you can push council to, uh, to do some things. So... 
Interesting strategy. I mean, uh, the other way of doing this, if you don't want to create a new organization, is just show up to a community league AGM with five people. You can take it over. And then that's basically a blank check to do anything you want to your community because council really just needs a letter from a community league and they'll do anything without asking any questions at all. Okay, so the DRC has shown up. We've directed administration to work with the DRC to put in $4 million and ramp up some of these vibrancy initiatives. Mac, you said these probably aren't really going to help very much. Yeah, I suppose I should qualify that a little bit. Like, it'll help. And $4 million toward social workers, mental health specialists, you know, the help in COT teams is a much better use of that provincial money than hosting a barbecue or any of the other things that could have happened under a downtown vibrancy initiative. So I do think it's a good thing this group has come forward and has, you know, at least directed a good chunk of that money that we got from the province toward things that we actually need. But the sort of underlying message behind the argument that many of these folks made at committee this week is that they just need to see more police downtown. There's not enough officers downtown. If there was more of a presence downtown, it would help address some of these problems. And I don't know how true that is. I mean, it would help make the people who are more well off feel more secure, perhaps, to see police around. But I don't think it's going to stop people from pooping in the LRT station, for instance, or doing drugs wherever they're going to do it, or not finding a public washroom that is open. I mean, all of the root issues that lead to the disorder that people are upset about aren't going to go away just because there's some police around. Maybe it'll shift slightly when it happens, but that's not solving the problem. That's just making the people who visit downtown feel more comfortable doing so. Depending on how aggressive the police officers are, it could potentially relocate the problem as well. Indeed. Committee was also looking at alternatives for the police funding formula. This was the funding formula that gave consistent increases to the police under the auspices of quote-unquote predictable funding in the wake of George Floyd protests around the world. Council said, yeah, you know, let's take a breather on this and paused the funding formula. So the police have had no increases due to the formula for the past couple of years. The police have had their funding still increased over the past couple of years, as we've covered extensively on this podcast. But this week, committee was tasked with deciding exactly how they want to deal with police funding increases and asks in the future, whether they want to create a new formula and what will this formula structure look like. And they really dug in this week. Administration put forward some options for what they might do uh, for this police funding formula discussion. They had three options in particular. The first is called alignment with existing civic department budget process. The first option would basically keep the police in alignment with the way that the city does all of its other budgeting. So prior to having the funding formula, what would happen is the police would bring service packages to council, just like all other civic departments and agencies, and council would vote on those. And so the first option is let's go back to doing that. The one difference would be, of course, that we now use four-year budgeting, whereas before we were using single-year budgeting. So they would have to bring back or bring forward service packages that cover the four years. The second option and the one that administration recommends is to go back to some sort of funding formula. And they recommend revising this using the similar kinds of factors as the previous one. So population growth, inflation, efficiency, that kind of stuff. And then the third option is some sort of interim approach, maybe charitably the kick the can down the road 
option. They could freeze funding levels or they could come up with some way of doing base funding and then gradually decrease it over time. Nobody really seemed to be interested, both from administration or from committee, in this third option. We were really talking about the first two. And one of the things I thought was really interesting, Troy, is that there was some confusion at executive committee about whether or not they actually had to decide anything. Like, is this report for information or did they need to make a decision at this juncture? And the mayor was confused about this. And I don't blame him because at the very top of the report, it says council decision required. (laughs) And yet throughout the entire meeting, administration would say, you don't actually have to make this decision today. And other counselors would say, I did not come thinking that we were going to decide anything about the funding formula today. So, I mean, it was kind of like an interesting way to start this whole discussion that we couldn't even get clear. What is the purpose of this discussion at committee? But those are the three options. And as I said, is the first two that we spent most of the time talking about. So a lot of the discussion around this, once we got past the procedural cruft of counselors asking, do I have to do anything today, was a motion by Councillor Erin Rutherford. And she basically put on the floor, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give the police a base funding of $385 million. On top of that, it will be whatever we get from Photo Radar and a, a couple other sources. And Bob's your uncle. There we go. No funding formula required. We can get service packages as per every other department at the city. And she put that motion on the floor. Yeah, to your point about uh, the mayor not being particularly strategic when it comes to police, he initially was very reluctant to allow her to put the motion on the floor in the first place. And and in fact, I don't think he was in the room when she did. I think at that point, uh, Councillor Ann Stevenson, who had the chair, allowed the motion to be read in uh, because it restricted potentially, you know, the kind of discussion that they could have. But, you know, there were members of the police service and members of the police commission there today as well. And uh, and the chair of the police commission, John McDougall, as you might imagine, was not happy with this. He said that this idea of a $385 million set budget and then, you know, having to put forward service packages over the four-year budget is arbitrarily assigning a number to the police budget. And he said, quote, it cuts the legs out from under the police commission and it is you usurping our role. Interesting thing about this debate today, Troy, for those of us who listen often, is that these are, you know, we're into the three-minute times now for committees, and uh, counselors haven't quite caught up to that. And so it seemed to go multiple rounds before they got to it. So this back and forth between McDougal and Councillor Rutherford took a couple of hours. <laughs> but ultimately, she said, I don't understand your concern. Like, what is the problem here? What I'm proposing is a baseline amount. million, which, by the way, is not a number pulled out of thin air. It's not the overall budget. She was trying to say, like, you can come back. You can bring service packages forward. There will be other opportunities. And the chair, McDougal, he basically said, I want to make sure that what we're starting at isn't based on the tax base. And I thought that was interesting because everything the council funds is based on the tax base, no? At the end of the day, he can put together, in consultation with the EPS, A list of asks. We would like several things. But if it includes a fleet of airplanes that cost hundreds of millions of dollars, we can't afford it. The tax base does determine what the EPS is able to do. And for the longest time, the EPS has had guaranteed funding increases, so they just did what they wanted. Accountability is rough that way, uh, I I feel, for (laughs) Chair McDougal. The one thing about this that I thought was very interesting was that it actually required 
an accounting of photo radar, which is not something that we've done before. And what I mean by that is we have the photo radar automated enforcement program that brings in quite a chunk of change a year. It transfers most of that, the majority of that funding to the Edmonton Police Service. For the past couple of years, that's been to the tune of about $22 million. And this has always sort of just been bonus funding. The police treat it as a budget. They can count on this money every year. Council treats it as a transfer from the automated enforcement reserve. We don't have to raise taxes. We don't have to set a tax levy. So it's always existed in this sort of limbo where people talk about the cash cow and talk about reforming photo radar, but don't talk about the cuts to police. I like how this made very explicit. This is your base funding and you get photo radar on top. Go figure if the province bans photo radar, then that's going to be a $22 million cut to the police. It puts the police in this position where they would have to advocate to the province and spin up their police union Twitter machine and actually advocate for photo radar unless they wanted a $22 million cut. And I just thought that was a very interesting and powerful addition to her motion that I don't know that was talked about quite enough. Yeah, I don't think that got a lot of attention, though. She did say that, you know, it was very intentional. She did not want the base budget to be starting at $407 million or whatever it is, right? What did get a lot of attention, unfortunately, is who has the authority to do what? And Troy, I have to say, it, it was a really frustrating day to listen to committee and to hear counselors how many months into their term now? Eight months into their term almost, seven months into the term, still unsure about what they have the ability to do and what the role of the commission is. Even more concerning that they are unable to use Google to open up the police act and look for themselves. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's really clear. The police act says that council can obtain as much information from the commission as is necessary in order to assess how efficient they are and to address and assess how much financial requirements they have for the police service. Council is responsible for establishing the total budget. This is that envelope that we talked about in that episode with Ann Stevenson. The commission is responsible for allocating the funds provided for under that budget. And this came up again and again. And Chair McDougall in particular, he said at one point, it's not the $22 million that is a problem for me. It's the fact that you're trying to do our job here and there's no engagement about our strategic plan and our business plan and the kinds of money that we need for policing. It just seemed like a real willful ignorance about the roles here. Council decides how much money goes to the police and the commission decides how they spend it. I think it's more transparent if we go forward with this uh, option of service packages because at least then, you know, the police commission is bringing forward some things that they would like to spend the money on. And Councillor Knack at one point in the meeting pointed out that all we can do is approve those packages and then they get the money. We can't enforce that they actually spend that money on the things that they say they're going to. To which the city manager replied, well, I'd like to point out that the police have never done that. And Councillor Knack said, actually, they have. <laughs> you know, he was a councillor at the time when some of these decisions were made. Corbold was not around. And he remembers that there were service packages that were approved that, you know, didn't get spent on that. And that's fine. He didn't have a problem with that. He just wanted to point out that there's no way to enforce that. So it was just a bit frustrating that we had to do this 101 of what is the police commission and what is city council responsible for yet again? 
Yeah, Andrew Knack ended up being one of the two members of committee voting against this uh, motion. The other, of course, being Jennifer Rice, who Jennifer Rice did not have uh, good reason or good points uh, for voting against it. But I was actually reasonably convinced by Andrew Knack's arguments against this because of that precise example. It does strike me as a little bit of a waste of time to have the police come forward with service packages and then get funding and then the police commission decides where that entire envelope goes and they get to decide if they want to fund those service packages or not it does seem like it's not the most effective method now of course i would say probably given the setup you know council approves an envelope and then the police commission is accountable to city council there are regular reports from the police about here is how we're spending the money but of course we know that the police don't do that and that was a frustrating part about this discussion was chair mcdougall kept saying things like we need to put together our business plan we need to put together the data and actually present a budget request and you know get funding that way but the police has never done that. And council has asked several times, including at this meeting, for more insight into how the police spends the money. They asked to audit the police. And the commission said, no, we're not going to let you audit the police at this point in time. It was very much a bit of hypocrisy that Chair McDougall wanted it both ways. He wanted to say, we want to use data and we want to show you the data and have you make decisions based on the data. But we don't ever want to show you the data. Yeah, he kept saying that all the data they ever get is made available on the commission's website. The Police Act is very clear that council can have any data it wants to decide the size of that envelope. And yet again and again throughout this meeting, and in fact in recent weeks, we have heard councillors say they don't have the data. They don't have the information. They can't make an informed decision about uh, how much money they need and how efficient the service is. So definitely a little bit of hypocrisy there. One of the other things that happened at this meeting that was, you know, almost a throwaway line didn't have a lot of ramifications at the meeting, but seemed pretty ramificationful, if you will. <laughs> a member of the police commission essentially called for the resignation of Councillor Ann Stevenson from the police commission. Mac, what was up with that? Yeah, Jody Callahue-Stonehouse is one of the police commissioners. She was at the meeting alongside Chair McDougall. She is neither the chair nor the vice chair of the police commission, yet she was using every opportunity to speak at one point, quite rudely cutting off Councillor Andrew Knack, I thought. I wonder if it's at all related to her run for the NDP. Who could say? Uh, who could <laughs> say? <laughs> uh, but yes, at one point she had this little outburst that, you know, essentially said that Anne Stevenson has not been transparent. She has on her staff as an advisor, Rob Hooley, who was a member of the Community Safety Wellbeing Task Force that wrote the Safer for All report. Rob spoke multiple times at committee this week. And Callie Stonehouse basically said that this is, you know, lacks transparency, is throws into question the integrity of Ann Stevenson and and loudly at the meeting called for her resignation from the police commission. And after she finished, there was this silence, this really awkward silence, and nobody said anything. And then all of a sudden, Mayor Amarjeet so he basically just continued with the meeting uh, and, and looked to the next person in the in the queue for uh, for their, their question period. So as you say, it seems like there should be ramifications from this, but there wasn't any at this meeting. At the very least, I suppose, it's clear now there are 
rifts within uh, the commission between members. Yeah, and of course, I have some pretty strong confidence that Councillor Ann Stevenson was in the right legally because, as she had mentioned on our episode, she has talked pretty at length with some legal advisors about what she can and cannot do vis-a-vis her role on the police commission. Uh, One person that didn't talk to his lawyers with enough length is Councillor Tim Cartmel. He seemed very confused about was legal or not legal at this meeting. Yeah, in addition to, you know, some questions about whether or not they should be deciding the 385 right now or if that's the right approach, you know, the other main opposition to Council Rutherford's motion was this concern about whether or not it's legal. So remember, as I mentioned, the Police Act says that council decides how much money they get. The commission decides where that money goes. And so the implication that Councillor Cartmel was making was if we move to this situation where we ask them to bring forward service packages that we then vote yes or no on, aren't we in effect performing the role of the police commission, deciding what gets funded or what doesn't, and had some questions about whether that was legal. He was not on executive committee today. He did not vote on it. He said if he were voting on it, and in advance of next week's council meeting, when he will have the opportunity to vote on it, he wanted to have advice from legal on this very question. And Troy, I got to say, I still do not understand why he's so confused about this, why the very practice that we did six years ago before we had a funding formula is now magically illegal somehow. I don't get it. Also, the practice that every other city in Alberta uses. Edmonton is the only city in Alberta that has a police funding formula, or I suppose had at this point. And, you know, from our experience, I can probably say that seems to be with good reason. Doesn't seem like it works great. Yeah, no doubt. And that is, you know, one of the other things I wanted to mention. There was a number of questions from councillors, in particular from Councillor Knack, about comparisons to other jurisdictions. Why can't we uh, see how we're doing compared to, say, Calgary or Winnipeg or some other places? And the common refrain from the police is that you just can't compare cities like that. There are too many things that are different between even Edmonton and Calgary. The things that we spend money on, they don't, and vice versa. There's no way to compare them. And I think that is frustrating. <laughs> and I could understand Councillor Knack's frustration in asking for this information and feeling like he's entitled to it. As he is, legally. Whatever information they want, exactly. And not being able to get that. There's even one part in the report uh, under the title jurisdictional scan where uh, administration says they completed a jurisdictional scan and did have some discussions with other municipalities. They found that nobody else has implemented a formal funding formula policy and, you know, said that they did maybe use population growth or inflation, but it wasn't really captured in a formula. But there was no information about that. And they kind of supported this idea that, you know, you can't compare them to other jurisdictions because of all the differences between these two places. So they didn't give us any information about their jurisdictional scan. This is not abnormal. Uh, We've done this basically everything. We've complained that bike lanes even, the downtown bike grid needed to be something made in Edmonton, a unique solution because no city has ever done this before. No city has ever built a road before. No city has ever cleared snow before. Edmonton's got to discover how to put snow in a dump truck for the first time. It's (laughs) some innovative (laughs) stuff. You're absolutely right that it is absurd that you can't compare across jurisdictions. Yes, there are differences, 
but you can also say what the differences are and we can trust counselors to maybe have their big boy pants on and understand and make complex decisions as we've elected them to do. This whole discussion I found was mired with people quite unsure about whether or not they should do their jobs. And I think in general, people should actually do the jobs that were assigned to them. There was one person, Troy, at the meeting who made it very clear she doesn't want to do her job. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe that's a bit harsh. Counselor Karen Principe. I don't even know what, what she said this in relation to, but she said at some point during the meeting that if the police say that they need an airplane, that she's going to believe them. No questions asked. <laughs> so, you know, she's pretty clear that she doesn't need to hold them accountable. She said, you know, I think that the police are held accountable, just not by her. <laughs> I found that exceptionally interesting, given that she ran on a platform of fiscal accountability. Remember, she was the counselor during the campaign who basically did a whole campaign gimmick about, I'm going to return my vehicle allowance to the city of Edmonton taxpayers. That's how concerned about fiscal accountability I am. But she's not going to ask a single question about the single largest budget item (laughs) on the city books. Absurd didn't begin to cover it. It was a pretty strange uh, comment, and I'm sure she regrets making it because it's going to be one of those things that's going to be hard to walk back. And it may come back to bite her as soon as next week when all of this will be discussed once again. Uh, Of course, this was just a committee week. Committee was generating recommendations for council. Council proper will have the opportunity to once again debate all of these things and decide as a whole how they want to move forward. Of course, committee recommended going forward with Aaron Rutherford's motion at a vote of three to two, but that's not all of council. There are 13 members. We could see something very different next week, but that will be next week. And in order for us to be around and keep the lights on until then, we've got to read you this ad. This episode is brought to you by Inventures, your front row seat to what's next. Register now for InVentures 2022, where you can learn, share, and be inspired by the startups, entrepreneurs, investors, and global thought leaders who are redefining the future. InVentures is coming up June 1st to 3rd in Calgary and online. It features more than 150 sessions, over 250 speakers, international keynotes, expert panels, startup pitch events, networking opportunities, and much more. You can reserve your pass now at InVenturesCanada.com. That's I-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S, Canada.com. Well, Mac, that's all our time for today. I'm uh, looking at some of our reviews on iTunes here, and it looks like we do have a 51% approval rating on (laughs) iTunes. People like us. But unfortunately, I'm going to resign this podcast episode anyway. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.